we live in a really competitive and cutthroat kind of world. Um, my guess is that many of us in here have spent some kind of time or emotional energy recently thinking about achievement or success in one way or the other. You may have thought about it at work. Where am I going in my career? This is a question that for some of us, we're early enough that we don't think about it yet. Some of us are starting to get to the age where we're like, oh man, 40s coming around the corner. Like, what have I actually accomplished in life, right? Like, that's kind of the questions that we start to ask ourselves. And it can be a very stressful thing. It can be a thing we worry about. We do this with our kids, right? I see, um, whenever we talk about choosing schools, I always find it interesting to see parents tense up a little bit. And I realized talking to some of them, it's like, well, where do you want to send your kid? Well, I want them to have the best opportunities possible so that they can do this and this and this. And I realized that most parents think their kid is going to be president of the United States. Like nobody wants to say, hey, my son is probably going to be a great auto mechanic. Now, there are really honorable things about being an auto mechanic. And, you know, there's just we need people to do all sorts of stuff. But nobody ever perceives their child as working in the service industry or, you know, being a, a waiter or a, a line cook or, um, you know, I, I read an article about how well trash people are paid nowadays, that it's actually a pretty good paying job to work, you know, picking up trash. And we, but we, nobody's ever thinking that, right? It's always like, no, I need to make sure that my child can make it to the Ivy League school so they can be a senator if they really want to be, right? You know, or they can go be a neurosurgeon or we just get really worked up. And sometimes that trickles down to where I see parents at preschool level worrying that they're going to pick the wrong preschool and it's going to doom their child to manual labor for the rest of their life, right? And we just get worried about this stuff. We get all caught up in what we're going to do. And it does not help that we live in such a competitive culture, that we live in a culture where everything is a contest. Anything that a person can do, we can make it a competition that people will watch on TV. Uh, Fran and I were in hospital rooms this week and scanning the hospital TVs. And I was shocked to find there is competitive tattooing now. There's like a reality show on, I think, Spike, where they get like 10 tattooers and they all are given a, a, a tattoo of the week. And people sign up to be human canvases is the phrase that they use, right? And they get all of them. And the worst part is then they let all the people look around and judge each other's tattoos and vote who has the best one to help figure out who to kick off the show. Can you imagine having the one that everyone's like, oh, yeah, yours is terrible, you know? But we've done that. We take something like tattoo artists and we make it a competitive deal. And it makes you feel like you're always, always, always competing. For those of you who are still dating, it can feel competitive to date, right? You're looking at the other people on their online profiles and you're like, I don't know if I'm as good as that guy. And you're just forced to always be feeling like you're fighting for something. And the reality of this is that we encourage it. We like to see super successful people, and we don't care how they get that way. Uh, this is a scene from a show we love on Netflix called Chef's Table, and they show some of the 50 best chefs in the world. This is a, a dessert that you can get in Chicago. Um, it may not look good to you. It looks so exciting to me. If you can't tell, they're like breaking those frozen globes, and they're going to like um, liquid nitrogen and there's going to be gas all over the place and it's awesome and I'm sure delicious but as I watch all these shows what I'm amazed by is there is no such thing as a super successful world famous chef that has a balanced life every single one that they talk to 
talks about how much stress it was, how strained it made their families. Some of them are doing okay. I'd say half of them we watch, they talk about how their uh, career made them divorce because they just were never around for their spouse. And it really kind of leads us to, I think, this interesting question as we look at this idea of getting ahead and achieving and working in your career and working at school. Have you ever thought about what it's going to take to maybe be the thing that you would like to be? Uh, some of us would love to be professional athletes, but I think we would hate practicing and working out eight hours a day, right? Like, that's fun as a hobby, but that may not be so much fun if you did it all the time. Um, some of us would love to be a TV star, but you look at, like, these children stars, right, that grew up on TV shows and how messed up their lives often are. Uh, what kind of compromises do you have to be to be president of the United States, right? What kind of people do you have to become friends with? to get the support and the money that you would need to have to get there. What kind of life does a rock star live? I didn't write, I wrote this sermon two weeks ago because I knew the baby was coming. And just in the last week, we had another suicide by a famous rock and roll star because there's so much emptiness in their lives despite the money and the success and all those things. And these questions all challenge us. Um, as I go forward, as I look at my career, as I look at who I am, as I look at what I'm doing in life, are, am I shaping my values, or are my values shaping me? If I ended up being the things that I dream about being, would I still know myself when I look in the mirror? Would I still be the same guy I think I am, or would my public persona not match who I was? What would I lose to have to achieve the things that I want to achieve? I know some of you have had that question as you looked at career, like this next step is going to make me do some things I don't necessarily want to do as far as my free time and my family and all those issues. And as we process all that stuff, I think it's really cool that James gives us a little help on this. Uh, James talks about it in terms of wisdom. He has this passage here tucked away at the bottom half of the third chapter that is about what worldly wisdom looks like versus what earthly wisdom looks like. And you can hear him, even in the ancient world, talking to people that are fighting with all this stuff, right? About what do I do? What do I care about? What do I prioritize? What is wisdom? And James gives very practical and interesting insight into what that looks like. Uh, starting James 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven. It's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. Uh, envy is kind of an interesting thing. Envy is kind of one of these Bible words that we use that we probably don't talk about as much. We probably use jealousy more in modern language. But envy is this thing where you want what somebody else has, right? That you give that sideways look like, well, why do they have that? For some of us, it happens in the, the workplace. Why did they get that promotion and I didn't? 
Why can't uh, I get ahead? Maybe there's a new opening and you're thinking about what you could do to speak poorly about this person to your boss to make sure you get the job and they don't, right? Like all these things start to come through our heads. Uh, maybe you uh, social media is bad about this. Wow, that's a really great vacation. I feel like we can't afford that kind of vacation. Why do they get to do that and I don't get to do that? Right? Oh, man. Her... Um, you know, her cake just looks so great. Why can't I make cakes that well? Right? This is Pinterest is terrible at this. It makes us terrible people because we're just filled with envy because everybody's better at everything than we are on Pinterest. And we get these feelings of like, I wish I had what somebody else does. And James says this is bitter, bitter envy and selfish ambition. What could I do to get me ahead? And James says, as we start to do these things, it becomes a mess. Um, one kind of coarse way to say this is that when you're part of the rat race, you, you necessarily become a rat, okay? We live in this world that's kind of constantly making us want to go after that next thing. And when you get so filled with that envy and that ambition of, I need more, I need to do better, I need this and this and this and this and this, James says when you do that, disorder and sin are what follows. You are going to start behaving in ways that you should not behave. You are going to start bringing chaos into the world around you. Uh, recently, I've been listening to the uh, Crime Town podcast. I know I'm really behind on this. All Providence residents should definitely listen to this podcast. It is the story of the history of the city through uh, much of the last half of the 20th century. And it focuses on organized crime. And it's interesting, whenever we see those stories, whether it's real-life ones or it's one from the movies, mob stories are always about selfish ambition, right? It's interesting to uh, listen to these guys on the podcast that went to jail for criminal activity, and they talk about how they just wanted to get ahead. They just wanted a good life, and they started getting into stuff that they shouldn't get into. Some of them did it in more altruistic ways to save their brother from getting into a life of crime or whatever. But there's always that selfish ambition thing. So it's like, I could get a little bit more. And what's really interesting is what's the term that we often use for these people? They're wise guys, right? Do you see that cultural value there? That we have snuck wisdom into people that would beat people up and shoot people for money, right? That is a earthly definition of wisdom. The wise guy who will do anything to get ahead. Who will do anything to make a few bucks that has no problem hurting other people and causing chaos and destruction and crime in their communities. We call that wise. And that would be no surprise to James. He would say, yeah, when you use earthly wisdom and selfish ambition and bitter envy, you are going to create the kind of chaos that happens when you have organized crime. Maybe a less extreme example. Um, there is a world full of young actors and actresses that are desiring to get ahead in Hollywood. And I'm sure we've all heard the cautionary tales, right, of the beautiful young woman that goes out to L.A. and she thinks she's going to be a star. And then as the roles do not come in, as she strives to compete in that difficult environment, she just makes more and more and more decisions that she wouldn't make otherwise. She sells out kind of her own dignity and her own sense of personhood to do anything, to make enough money, to hope that she'll make it big. 
And this is how we see all kinds of stories from women's falling into prostitution or um, pornography production or all those kinds of things. It happens to men too. This desire to get ahead and then life just slowly falls apart because you're striving so hard to make yourself rich and famous that you're just willing to sell everything else out on the way. And James says when you live filled with ambition and envy, ultimately that's the kind of stuff that happens. Life is going to devolve into chaos. And so we start to ask ourselves, what else could we do? James says it's really important not to get into this, and his description is strong. He says that kind of wisdom, that desire to get ahead and to be rich and to be famous and that ambition, it is earthly, it is unspiritual, and it is demonic. Okay, James pulls zero punches there. He says when you live that way, you focus on the physical things, you focus on temporary things, and ultimately you just have the wrong priorities. And what you do is you advance the purposes of evil and Satan in the world when you're going about trying to deal with selfish ambition and bitter envy. And so, thankfully, James does not, remember last week where he was like, so, good luck. This week, there's more than good luck. James gives us a wonderful uh, counterexample of what godly wisdom looks like compared to earthly wisdom. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure. Then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. All right, so this is one of those lists. And if you're like me, uh, you get to these lists in the Bible and you go, oh, that's a list of really good things. And once you start hearing the cadence of the list, you just tune out, right? So let's just walk through them real quickly, one at a time. Paul sa- or Paul James says that this kind of wisdom is pure. We should probably just understand this as lacking evil. Things that you don't do bad things. You don't do evil things. You don't mistreat other people. It is sin-free, this kind of wisdom. If someone is giving you wisdom that's making you do something that pricks your conscience, it is not actually wise. Okay? Uh, if you are somehow in a career and someone goes, listen, if you just do this, you're going to get ahead. And you go, that doesn't seem right. But they know what they're doing. That is not wisdom, okay? That is earthly wisdom, and it brings destruction. He says it's pure wisdom that tells us to do good things, not bad things. Um, It is peace-loving. We should ask ourselves when we hear a piece of wisdom, is that going to cause problems and conflict, or is that going to help me get along better with other people? Do I care more about relationships than I care about being right or succeeding? If I do something that will make me a successful person but destroy the relationships in my life, it's probably not godly wisdom. Godly wisdom says you can succeed without making everybody around you hate the, everybody around you hate you. Uh, James says it's considerate. This just means that it looks out for other people's uh, well-being. It helps other people that need help. When someone gives you wisdom, if it has a lot of collateral damage, if you getting ahead means that other people's lives will suffer, it is probably not godly wisdom. I'll get really specific, and this is just Caleb wisdom. Take it or leave it. If your job decisions are going to significantly hurt your spouse and your kids, they're probably not godly job decisions. Okay? And I know that's hard. And I know that a lot of times to get ahead, there's little things that we have to pay. And there's, I'm not saying that, you know, don't overhear that. But there's got to be, is it considerate? Is my career help my, my spouse and my kids 
feel loved and cared for, and that I'm there for them. And if it is creating collateral damage in my family life, it may not be a wise decision. James says it's submissive. If you have people who are your mentors in your life, are you listening to them? If you don't have people who are mentors, why don't you have people who are mentors in your life, right? Like, this is really important. The Bible talks about having older brothers and sisters in Christ that help walk with us. Or just more experienced or more wise people. Are you making decisions that you find the wisest people in your life, the most godly people in your life, are constantly going, eh, I'm not so sure that's a good idea. It's a very bad sign when you're doing things that the people around you think are a bad idea. And I, I found just in my personal experience, we have a lot of wisdom in our church. Um, even at a young age, a lot of you guys are great. And sometimes you go, Caleb, are you sure you want to do that? And I'm like, oh, okay. You got to listen to that stuff. But submission is also just, do I put other people's needs before myself? If me and someone else are up for a promotion, if they're the better fit and it's going to bless their lives, am I in a spot where I go, you know what? They're better for this. I can wait for the next one. Like that is very contrary to the wisdom that we're told. But that's submissive. That's being willing to let others be first. Uh, full of mercy and good fruit. Am I allowing bitterness to arise? Do I make decisions? Am I acting in my life in such a way that makes me angry at other people? And a step beyond that, does that mean I'm being punitive to other people? Do I, you know, if you cross me, I will cut you, right? Like this is kind of the way that sometimes we deal in life. And James would say that's not mercy, even if someone's bad to you, be merciful to them. Be kind to them. That's the way that Jesus would have you be. Are you having wisdom that is teaching you to do eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, which Jesus says is not the way to live? How are my decisions uh, just generally affecting my life? Am I a happy person? Am I a fun person to be around? If you start making decisions and people in your life say, you know, you're not as much fun as you used to be. It may be that that's a bad decision, okay? It's just turning you sour. It's creating sour fruit in your life. Sincere. Um, are you... Um, oh, impartial. I forgot impartial. Uh, this one's for Preston and Alana. This is their favorite guy. Are we being fair, you know, like a judge that treats people fairly, treats them the same? James has already talked in this section about impartiality, the importance of treating the rich and the poor the same. Do I live in such a way that the wisdom of how I'm living shows people that I treat them the same, whether they're like me or not? And then sincere. Are you being fake or are you being consistent? Is the person that you are in one context the same person you are in the other? Um, I'm not saying that Bill Belichick is not a godly person. I have no idea of his relationship with Jesus. But uh, this is always interesting. I hear that the coach of the Patriots, Bill Belichick, is a lot of fun in person, but the media hate him because he's mean and grumpy with the media, right? That he has two totally different faces, the face that's public and the face you see behind, uh, behind the scenes. Uh, that one's probably a little better than the opposite way, where at work everybody thinks you're a great guy, but everybody at your house hates you, right? But nonetheless, this is something you've got to work on. Am I being the same person all the time? When I speak, am I sincere? When I am at my job, do I sit around and kiss up to everybody I know in order to sort of get ahead and be well-liked, or am I being honest when I'm around other people? Am I lying to other people frequently? James says that's not wisdom. It's not sincerity. We live in a world that kind of tells you that your life is about trying to get to the top, 
trying to succeed, trying to go further and further and further and higher and higher and higher and kick whoever you need to in the teeth to make sure you get there. Nobody says that. No, I don't think anyone in the corporate world, you guys can tell me, those of you that work at big companies, like this is not like on posters. They're not like encouraging you to do this from the corporate standpoint. But you know that in order to succeed and get ahead, you know, it's competitive. You're going to have to sharpen your elbows a little bit. And if we make the mistake of thinking that that is the way to live, we are going to be in trouble. James says that when you sow peacemaking, it results in righteousness. If we reverse engineer that, if you want to be a good person, if you want to act righteously, this is a really Bible term, you know, theological term that sometimes we don't understand. Righteous just means in a right relationship with other people and with God, where you and other people are getting along and you and God are getting along and everything is cooking along the way it's supposed to and there's love and joy and peace and happiness because we're all treating each other the way we're supposed to. That's righteousness. If that's what you want in your life, then you need to sow the seeds of peacemaking, getting along with other people. Helping people up, not kicking other people down. Creating peace instead of creating conflict. Getting along with people that you're competing with instead of fighting them. Abigail this week was in camp. And she said one of the kids, they were doing a, a, a team thing where it was a competition. And one of the kids in their group kept saying, listen guys, we're just here to have fun. Let's not get all worked up about it. In my mind, I'm thinking, what a weenie. Man, what a stupid kid, right? Like, I mean, that's just the way I am. I'm competitive. But as I thought about it coming into this sermon, what a godly kid, right? Let's just have fun. Let's just enjoy this. Let's just work together. It doesn't have to be a winner and loser to everything for it to be good. I love ranking the best quarterbacks ever because I want some of them to win and some of them to lose, right? Because that's kind of guy I am, but that's not the Christ-like guy that I should be. And James says, when you try to live in peace, when you try to make peace, living that way changes you, and it brings the fruit of righteousness. And ultimately, what that means is that your character is formed more into that of Jesus. Right? This is the cool thing about Jesus. Jesus can win any bragging competition he needs to. This is, uh, I'm really off script at this point, but, um, you know, um, we have this, this story about Jesus being tempted in the wilderness by Satan. And Satan tempts him with the stuff that we would want. He goes, you're hungry? Have some bread. I love food. I'm getting excited about blueberry buckle, right? Like, yes, we want food. But then he, sa- he takes him up to the mountain or to the temple and he says, jump off this temple and you'll be saved by the angels. That's cool. It's like a superpower. I want superpowers, Right. Sounds awesome. And then the last one. If you bow down to me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus says, no, I don't want that. The irony is he kind of already has it, right? Like Satan is kind of offering him what he already owns. But besides that, Jesus goes, I don't need that stuff. I'm okay to be a poor carpenter that walks around and has good friends and teaches people how to love each other. That's all I want to do. I don't need to be rich. I don't need to be famous. I don't need my face on posters. I don't need promotions. I'm okay living off other people's donations, whatever. You know, like this is okay for me because I've got a mission that's to make the world a better place and I just don't need that stuff. 
That's hard for us. You are not being encouraged to do that in your life. At your workplace, at the schools you went to, at the schools our kids are going to, for some good reasons, and, you know, there's a flip side of this, right? There is value to ambition. We, I had a whole sermon about ambition uh, with the women of the Hebrew Bible series last fall that I can pull up for you. There's some value. We talked about Miriam, actually, as an ambitious woman. And there can be good godly ambition. I think more of the New Testament would talk about doing your best all the time, that no matter how bad or how good your job is, you work at 100% as if you're working for God. That's the way Christians succeed. And that's why there's Christians who are successful people. It's because they work really hard as if they're working for God. But you don't get there by sitting around and thinking about what you want that somebody else has. To become someone like Jesus, you want to make peace. Because when you sow peace, when you sow right relationships, the fruit is goodness and society functions and clicks the way it's supposed to. And we get done of all this envy and strife and anger and backbiting that we have so much in the world around us. All right. Uh, if you're new to us, we always do a Q&A at the end of every sermon. So if there was something about the passage or the application or anything like that that you want to ask, please do. So I'm going to kind of hijack your question a little bit because the best way I know how to do it is to talk about my life. Okay? So I'm not trying to be selfish or narcissistic, but um, so the question was for the, I always forget to do this for the recording. The question was, uh, what do you deal with this idea that maybe I'm just not fulfilling all the potential that God gave me, right? I hate the passage to who much is given, much will be expected. And I'm like, well, I'm a pretty smart guy. Maybe I'm much more expected of me. What's going on? Am I, you know, fulfilling that, you know, I have enough arrogance that that passage bothers me. So anyways, um, I was with a professor from college, uh, from grad school, about a year ago. And we started talking about a buddy of our, not a, a, a mutual acquaintance, that had gone through the similar school system, who had gone to church plant in uh, Texas. And they started kind of a house church model where they met in homes. And six, seven years in, that was, I don't know, they have 20 people in a house, right? And this teacher said, I just get really frustrated. I mean, I know how talented he is and how well he speaks and how smart he is. And the idea that he's still wasting his time with 20 people in a living room when he could be leading a much bigger church just seems like a waste to me. So you know what I'm doing, right? Immediately I'm in my head like, how many people are going to get church on Sunday? How many years have we been doing this? Am I a waste in his mind yet or not? How many years do I have until I'm a waste? How many more people will we have to add until I'm not a waste? Right? Like, this is just what's going through my head. Um, I don't, that's not godly wisdom. That doesn't bring good fruit in my life. It doesn't make me a better person. Um, I think it's really important that the Bible is full of people that are small scale. I love the book of Ruth. Because the book of Ruth is about a family that just helps two people in poverty not be in poverty anymore. It's all the book's about, right? It's just a romance. Um, story of Hannah is great. Just a normal person with normal problems. Some of Paul's letters, you know, Philippians, we think, might be written about two ladies at church that can't get along. And Paul's telling them, stop fighting, right? There is a lot in the Bible about small, little things that are really big, godly things. And the people that 
secular history would remember are not the people the Bible remembers. Because God's got a different criteria about that. And so for me, um, when I look at the lives of people in here, and I know what's happened to some of you and what you guys have gone through, and the fact that God's used us to walk with you through some of that, um, that helps me to banish some of those thoughts. Because I, I don't think they're particularly godly. You know, for me, yeah, I could be a preacher at a church of four or 500 people and do great sermons, get patted on the back every week, and be really miserable and really not growing as a person. It'd be easier for me to be at a bigger church, I think. That may sound stupid, but I think that's, you know, like what we do here is hard for me. And I feel like I cannot fool myself into using other criteria. So I guess I would say in the midst of the midlife crisis thing, that we have to push hard into what is God's criteria. Passages like, what does is, what is God expect of you? To love mercy, to love justice, and to walk humbly with God. You're somebody who loves mercy and justice and is trying to walk humbly with God. That is success. More than whatever sits on a CV. Um, and just balancing that stuff's really important. You know, I look at preachers who are really super successful. I know, I mean, I can give you great stories of, or terrible stories of really successful megachurch preachers that were absolutely dogs of human beings, just bad people. And I just had to remind myself that there's just other stuff going on, like for me, than church size or whatever. So does that, does that answer your question remotely? Okay. And I think you could run your criteria through the same list. Is that a sincere, impartial, impartial peace-loving, mercy-filled, fruit-bearing, submissive, considerate criteria? Or is that a criteria that's a little bit about envy and ambition? Does that make sense? Any other questions? Yeah, Jay. Look at, I mean, very real for me, an example of that. You know, I talked a little bit about my own look at these things. One of the ways I know I'm working in envy is um, if I say, well, if I had had to leave this job, how could I get hired somewhere else? How would I match up to someone else's uh, like um, CV, right? Like this is immediately what I'm thinking about. And that's not like, oh, God will take care of us and there'll be another job. It's like, oh, wait a minute. How are people going to perceive me? So I think that's really good. Thanks, Emily. Yeah. So one of the things I would just say that quickly is um, part of that is we have to redeem the other things we do. I mean, Emily, your job is a ministry. Like, you serve a Messiah that heals people, and you do that. Excuse me. What is wrong with me? It's like I had a baby this week or something. But, you know, like, um, <laughs> yeah, all those hormones leaving my butt. Right, yeah, that's exactly it. But you know what I'm saying? Like, you live like Jesus when you do that. You know, and it, that's really easy for you in a medical, you know, profession. For some of us who maybe do some other things, it won't feel as obvious that way. But some of this is that you make your job a ministry. You make sure that you are being like Jesus in your job. And your family is a ministry. You are doing one-on-one -on -one discipleship for the next 18 years at an extreme level, okay? Um, and so, I mean, that really, it's what it is, right? Like, parenting is discipleship. Um, if you want to know how you're good at helping people grow as a Christian, be a parent for a while and you'll learn how to help those kids grow if you're being careful about that, you know? So anyways, I don't know if that helps at all. 
Because, yeah, there's practicalities of it. But I think it's also a good pinch to allow to stay there a little bit. Because you're right. You know, you can't kind of stop your job or stop sleeping. But then there's hours that are flexible a little bit. And where you spend those and what you do with those is, is, is I think, something God does want you to think about. Uh, I'm not saying you specifically, but wants us to think about. 